Well, I bring you greetings from Anniston Bible Church. It's exciting. This is really a great privilege for me to be with you today and with your congregation to worship with you. Um, I've had some blessed fellowship with your staff uh, the last few years, and so uh, I consider this a great privilege. And thank you, Cody, for inviting me. I've been assigned to speak on sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone expresses the very essence of Christianity. Rather than embracing the cultural lies of believing in yourself, human goodness, human potential, self-sufficiency, personal autonomy, saving faith depends completely on Christ. Biblical faith means believing, trusting, resting, and depending entirely on our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the way that we are saved. This is the way that we live. Let me say that again. Biblical faith means believing, trusting, resting, and depending entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now that is why Faith is the opposite of works righteousness and why it is the enemy of pride. Faith requires humility. Humility is the recognition of our spiritual poverty, our depravity, our spiritual ruin. Faith and humility go in tandem because only by recognizing our emptiness and our deadness will we look to Christ. Consequently, faith and pride cannot exist together. Pride rests on my own ability. Pride is the spirit of independence. Pride puts confidence in my own righteousness. Pride boasts in my own works, boasts in what I have accomplished. Pride is the, the scoreboard that tells me I am the winner, that I measure myself. It tallies my successes, showing what I have gained. But faith is humble dependence on Christ alone. You think about the Apostle Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just turn there for a moment. He says, now remember, Paul is Pharisee of the Pharisee, Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. He is accomplished concerning the law. He says, I'm blameless. He has built a monument to himself in terms of what he has accomplished, right? It religiously. And this is what he says. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yea, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Faith is humble dependence on God alone. It is the opposite of pride. Are you trusting, resting, believing in Christ today for your salvation? You may have heard, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, about the great Blondin. In the 19th century, he was the first man to ever walk on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. 
and uh, people were in awe of what he was doing. And in fact, uh, he went on to cross the falls many, many times before multitude of crowds. He even walked across on stilts. He took a little stove out there and cooked an omelet and, and ate it uh, over the falls. And so it was amazing. People were just amazed at what he could do. He took a wheelbarrow and uh, went across the falls. He carried uh, several hundred pounds of cement in the wheelbarrow. And, and then he would ask the crowd, he would say, uh, do you believe I could take someone across in the wheelbarrow? And of course, people would cheer and shout yes. And, and then he would ask anyone in the crowd that seemed to be cheering loudly, um, do you think I could carry you across? Would you be willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Well, faith means getting in. It's more than knowledge. It's more than saying, I, I believe, I've heard that the uh, great Blondin can carry a person in a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It's more than agreement. Well, I, I agree that the great Blondin can carry someone across. Faith is getting in. And there are a multitude of people who, who say they have faith, but there are few who actually, who really depend on Jesus Christ alone for salvation and to live. Now, Protestant doctrine has been summarized in those five Latin slogans that your church has been studying. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. On the authority of Scripture alone, we know, we believe, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. They're like the, the synchronized gears of a, a fine Swiss watch, like uh, the harmonies of a symphony, all of these doctrines working together like the voice parts of a, a beautiful choir producing and contributing each one significantly and beautifully to the whole of the doctrine of our salvation. Today we're looking at faith alone. Faith alone gives the glory to God alone because it depends on Christ alone for salvation. Faith does not look to ourselves. Faith looks to God alone through the work of Christ alone, and that's why God gets all the glory. Faith looks humbly to God. It's the trembling hand. Faith is the trembling hand by which we receive the free gift of God, unearned and undeserved. That is why the principle of sola fide, faith alone, is the essence of Christianity. Faith means believing resting, trusting, depending on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for his saving mercy. Now faith alone expresses the Reformation doctrine of justification. Martin Luther said that this doctrine is the point on which the church either stands or falls. The church is either standing or falling by whether it is articulating the doctrine of salvation, justification by faith alone in Christ. The less 
that is made of this doctrine, the more that a church may, is falling, is failing. But the more that this truth is taught, the more the church is founded, strengthened, edified, built up, the more that God is glorified in a congregation of God's people. Let me paraphrase the Westminster Confession in its definition of justification by faith. Listen carefully. Justification by faith alone is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone. I'm going to say it once more. Listen carefully. It is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed, counted to us by faith alone. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 16 in particular. Galatians 2 can be divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 10, Paul explains that the gospel that he preached is the same gospel that was preached by the apostles in Jerusalem. And he tells about a visit that he made to Jerusalem in which he had conversations with the apostles. And when they heard the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles, they said, Amen. They gave to he and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They recognized that God had called Peter as an apostle to the Jews and that God had called Paul and given him a ministry of the gospel among the Gentiles. And they commended Paul and Barnabas to the ministry that was obvious that God had given to them. And they affirmed that he was teaching the gospel truth. And then when we come to verses 11 through 21, that's the second part of the chapter, Paul tells a story, a horrifying story in many ways, of how although they had these shared convictions, that he had to rebuke Peter for failing to live up to the grace principle that says that all people who believe are received into the fellowship of Christ and must be received in our fellowship as well. If Christ received them, we must receive them. Peter came to the church of Antioch in Syria. This is a church with a large Gentile membership. And this visit must have been after Peter had gone to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10 and preached the gospel and saw the conversion of this God-fearing Gentile and had received a, a vision. You can read in Acts chapter 10, he received a vision of a sheet coming down. He learned from the, the Lord by revelation that he should call no man unclean. So Peter would not have accepted the inclusion of the Gentiles except for the vision that God had given him. And now Peter has embraced the freedom in Christ, a fellowship with Gentiles. That's what he's doing there in Antioch of Syria. 
And we'll keep in mind that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He has, his main ministry is to evangelize the Jews, especially Judea, Jerusalem. That's where his ministry is primarily located. And word comes to Jerusalem that he is in fellowship. He's sitting down having table fellowship with Gentiles, non-proselyte Gentiles, non-circumcised Gentiles, uh, Gentiles who aren't following dietary laws. And James is very concerned that Peter is risking his ministry with the Jews there, that it'll close the door. And so he sends a group up to speak to, to Peter, and whatever their message, as soon as Peter hears it, he withdraws from table fellowship with the Gentiles. Now, I think that James' motive, and perhaps Peter's motive as well, that they may have been sincere in thinking that if, unless I send a message to the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem that I'm maintaining Jewishness, uh, I'm going to lose the open door that I have to evangelize. I think that is exactly what was on James's mind when he sent these, this ambassage up to Peter to tell him that you need to stop eating with the Gentiles. And though his advice was practical, it was all wrong concerning the gospel. It turned the gospel upside down. The implications were a denial, an inherent denial of gospel freedom. And so while withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles sent a welcomed message back to Jerusalem of Peter's Jewishness and keeping of the law, it also sent a message of legalism to the Gentiles. It forced them to uphold Jewish customs in order to be able to hold table fellowship with Peter. And we have in Galatians chapter 2 the substance of Paul's rebuke of Peter. And so I want to read Galatians chapter 2 and we'll pick up at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Would you stand with me as we read this section? Galatians 2 and verse 14 through 21. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
But the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. What we've just read here is the substance of Paul's rebuke, but it's also the substance of his rebuke to the Galatians who have been listening to these Judaizing teachers who have told them that faith in Christ is insufficient, that you must also keep the law. Here Paul accuses Peter of hypocrisy because he was acting in a way that was contradictory to the truth of the gospel. It was not an honest mistake. Peter knew better. Peter's efforts to remain approvingly Jewish in the eyes of the Jerusalem community sent a message to the Gentile believers that being in Christ is not sufficient to hold fellowship with your Jewish brothers. You're not good enough unless you are circumcised and keeping these ritual laws, these laws of purity. Peter would never have preached that message verbally. He did not believe it. That is why it is hypocrisy. He was acting in a way that contradicted the very thing that he knew was true. But his actions spoke a false gospel. So our key verse, verse 16, Paul makes it clear that he and Peter both recognize that the works of the law cannot justify a person before a holy God. Even, Paul says, we Jews, even us, we have believed in Christ for our justification because we know that no man, he uses a general word here for man, no man, no person, no human being can be justified by the works of the law. God's acceptance of us depends solely on believing, trusting, resting in the righteousness of Christ for our salvation. It is faith alone in Christ, not faith plus circumcision, not faith plus purity rituals. So the main point, the main point of verses 15 through 21 is that justification before God does not come from works righteousness but by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let me state it in terms of the Reformation. Verse 16 teaches us that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. So since verse 16 is our key passage, I want to draw three specific points from this verse. And the first one is this. Justification means that God declares a believing sinner not guilty. Justification means that God declares a believing sinner not guilty. I want you to look again at verse 16. Take notice of the repetition of the word justified. It occurs three times, knowing that a man is justified, not to be not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We're going to read this verse a number of times. Paul's, Paul may be monotonous in the way he repeats himself here, but let me tell you, his monotony is glorious. What is justification? Now, there are passages in the Old Testament that especially help us. I just want to mention one. Deuteronomy 25.1, I'm, I'm going to read it to you. 
Deuteronomy 25.1 helps us to understand the meaning of justification. To be declared not guilty, okay? To be declared in the right. If there is a dispute between men, Deuteronomy 25.1, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. You can see how instructive this legal passage is. Justified means to declare or vindicate as righteous. Two men who are in a dispute come to the judges. The judges listen to their case. And based on the law, they discern and say, you are in the right and you are wrong. They justify the righteous and they condemn the guilty. Justification means to declare that you are in the right. It means to, to declare not guilty. Now listen carefully. Justification is a legal term. This is a legal declaration of God. If a prisoner is brought before a judge and he's tried for a crime, there's only one way for him to be justified. He has to be found not guilty. If he is guilty, he cannot be justified. If his lawyer proves that he is a just man that does not deserve to be punished, if he is found not guilty, then he is justified. Now, sometimes you hear of governors or of presidents who may pardon someone who has been found guilty. But just because a pardon is given, just because a sentence is commuted, that does not make the person not guilty. It doesn't justify him. Humanly speaking, there's no means of justifying a guilty person. Humanly speaking, there is no means of justifying a guilty person. But as Spurgeon says, the wonder of wonders is that we are proved guilty and yet we are justified. Something no earthly judge, no earthly court can accomplish. You and I stand before the judgment of God, the judgment of God's law. And we are condemned, except that the Son of God does for us what could not be done in any earthly court. By the grace of God the Father, His Son took our guilt. Now listen, did you hear what I said? His Son took our guilt, not just our punishment. He took our guilt as well as our punishment. That's a vital point. Jesus Christ took our guilt, not just our punishment. He took ownership of my sin. He not only died for me, he died as me. The filth of my transgressions was laid on him. He was condemned in my place. And it's on that basis that a believing sinner is declared by God not guilty. That is justification. Praise God. And that brings me to the second point. God never justifies a person on the basis of their moral attainments, their good works. God never justifies a person on the basis of their moral attainments or good works. So once more, look back at 2.16 and take notice of that phrase, the works of the law. Notice how many times it occurs. Paul is making a point. Listen to the negative tone. You know, when you're reading the Bible, there's a tone 
that the writer or the speaker has. And Paul has a very strong negative rebuke that is coming through in this letter. They have betrayed the gospel by listening to these Judaizing teachers. These people who have told them they have to have something other than Christ. Listen, if a person adds one thing to the gospel, if they add one thing to the gospel, they have corrupted the gospel. It is no longer the gospel. So if I add, if I add just baptism, right? It's not just faith in Christ. Yes, faith in Christ, but you're not saved yet. You have to be baptized. That's no different than saying, yes, uh, faith in Christ, but we have to have circumcision. Uh, if we add one thing, we have corrupted the gospel. And so Galatians 2.16, notice the phrases, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. There it is. But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified in Christ, and here it is again, not by the works of the law. For, once more, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so three times he tells us that we cannot be justified by the works of the law. What, is the, what are the works of the law? Well, it, it simply means doing what the law requires. So what does the law require me to do? Well, that might take a while, but let me just sum up. You know, when I preached this message at ABC, it was 57 minutes long. But the good news is I threw away about five pages of notes. So hang in there, okay? And you guys that were at Six Flags last night, okay, just uh, pretend you're still on the roller coaster here. You can raise your hands if you want, you know, we want you to stay engaged here. So we're thinking here of Galatians 2.16. What is it that the law requires? The law requires that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. The law requires that I never use God's name in a thoughtless or blasphemous way. The law requires me to respect and submit to my parents, to never murder, to not steal, nor lie, nor covet. And we could go on. And Galatians 3.10 makes Paul's meaning very clear. Three times he's told us that it is not by the works of the law. We cannot be justified by the works of the law. And in Galatians 3.10, he tells us that it is only, whoever says that they are under the law, that they're keeping the law, is obligated to keep the entire law, not just some part of it. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Anyone who does not continue in everything that is written in God's law to do it is cursed. If that's the way you want to go, Paul says. But that is not the way to go. That's why we cannot be justified by some sort of moral achievement on our own. But we human beings are convinced of our own righteousness. We justify ourselves not only in our own eyes, but we want others to know that we're achieving some sort of level of righteousness. And if we are uh, attacked in any way. We defend ourselves. We measure ourselves against the standard of other people. We always want to justify ourselves. 
But just because we justify ourselves in our own eyes or even in the eyes of others, that does not mean that we are justified in the eyes of God. You know, years ago, I was on a mission trip to Puerto Rico. We had missionaries there that were serving, especially the servicemen at the Air Force base that was there at that time. And we went down, I was spending time with our missionaries. And it, during that fellowship, we ate at a, a, a little outdoor restaurant, kind of a blue collar place, great food, cheap, you know. And uh, so we were, we were eating there. And uh, the missionary that I was with, Dennis Kirkland, Dennis uh, noticed uh, someone that he knew. And he said, uh, I'm just gonna call him John. He said, hey, this is John over here. He said, I'm going to go over and speak to him. He said, I've witnessed to him before. He said, John owns a, a strip club that is just outside the military base. So Dennis went over and spoke to him, invited him to come and join us. And so John came over and joined us and, and we began to talk. And of course, Dennis is going to share the gospel again. And he's talking about how sinful we are how much we have fallen short in the eyes of God. But John immediately begins to defend himself. Now, keep in mind, he's a strip club owner. It's my only time to actually sit down and have a conversation with a strip club owner. And, and he begins to defend himself. He says, look, he said, I want you to know I run a clean club. He said, no prostitution, no, no fighting, no drugs. I'm not like other guys, he said. I run a clean club. So here is a strip club owner comparing himself with other strip club owners. And when he looks at himself, he's justified. He's, he's doing better than they are. The scorecard says that he's winning. Oh, but he wasn't thinking of being measured by the standard of God's law. Luther called God's law his hammer, God's hammer. Luther says that our preoccupation with our own righteousness, our, our arrogance to believe that we are good, our, our arrogance to justify ourselves has to be shattered. He said it's like a monster in the human race and in the human heart that we would think of ourselves as righteous. And he says God has to shatter that, that image that we have of ourselves and he used the, uses the hammer of the law to shatter that, that idea, that false idea, that lie that is in the heart of man. And so the, the hammer of God's law comes down. He says it is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, the lightning of divine wrath. You remember when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he was using the hammer of God's law he told people, he said, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, th these guys were the professional righteous people, you know. Nobody was achieving more than these guys were achieving. And if we've got to be, have more righteousness than these guys, how can we possibly? And exactly Jesus' point. And he uses the law as a hammer to, to make this point. As Jesus is teaching the law in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he uses two rules by which he interprets the law. He uses the inside-outside rule. 
the inside-outside rule, or maybe it's outside-inside rule, it's like this, that not only does God's law forbid the outward act, for instance, murder. God's law forbids murder. You say, oh, good, got that one, haven't murdered, haven't killed anybody, not yet. And so, you know, God's law forbids murder. But the rule that Jesus uses, right, is that not only does that law forbid the outward act of murder, it also forbids all of the inward thoughts and, and emotions of the heart that lead up to the outward act. And so resentment, anger, you know, hatred, uh, these malice, sinful thoughts of other people's suspicions, those kind, this, that's murder. That's right. That, that insulting your husband or your wife, that's murder. And so Jesus uses the hammer of the law to show us that we, how sinful we are. Now he uses another rule, not only the inside-outside rule, but the two-sided rule. Because not only does the law forbid the outward act and the inward emotions that are a part of uh, the, the sin, it, it forbids us to do those things or to even have those things in our hearts, obviously then, right, we are lawbreakers, but it also, it also obligates us to do the opposite. So not only must you uh, not kill your enemy, but you have to love your enemy. You're obligated to love your enemy. Not only should you, you cannot commit adultery, you cannot have lust in your heart toward others, the inward emotion that leads to the act of adultery is forbidden as well, but also you must love and be faithful and keep your covenant to your spouse. And so Jesus, by his teaching, uses the hammer of the law. Listen, do you feel the hammer of the law? It shows us that we are so sinful. Even a man like Paul realized because of the command, you shall not covet, that not only does the law forbid sin, it forbids the desire to sin. And he said, I wouldn't have known sin except the law said, you shall not covet. Romans chapter 7. The law of God is exceedingly broad. So to be saved, we must not only repent of our sins, we have to repent of our confidence in our own righteousness. We will only come to Christ when we repudiate all hope of being good and doing better. Listen, there are many churches this morning that are preaching a gospel of being good and doing better. Try harder. People leave and they think, oh, if I can just be good and try harder. That is not the gospel. If you leave here and that is what your thought is, listen, you have not understood the message. You remember the gospel hymn, Come Ye Sinners. It warns of this danger of trying to think that there's some way to reform ourselves. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, tell you better. Well, I've got to wait until I can get some things together before I can come to the Lord. He says, the songwriter says, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you, make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Well, if I could just be fit for heaven, if I could just be prepared and, and so that he would accept me. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's what the songwriter says. So God never justifies a person on the basis of their moral attainments or their good works. 
Justification proves that in relation to God, we are either under the law or we are under the gospel. If we are, if we believe we're a good person and that God accepts and approves us uh, based on the things that we do and the kind of person that we are, then you are under the law and you will not be justified. But if you have given that all up and you recognize the hammer of law has destroyed all confidence in your own goodness and righteousness and that Christ alone is your Savior, then you are under the gospel. And under the gospel, you will be justified. If you are under the law, you'll be judged by the books. You remember there in Revelation chapter 21, I think it is, Revelation 21 when the, the books are opened. And if you are under the law, you're judged by every thought and word and deed that is recorded in the books. No one will be justified who is judged out of the books. But if your name is found in the Lamb's book of life because Christ has already paid the penalty for your sin, he has already taken your guilt away and your name has been written there with where the blood of Christ is and you're in the Lamb's book of life, then you are justified. Let me say in another way to make this even clearer. Listen, you must never confuse the root with the fruit of Christianity. Faith in Christ is the root Good works are the fruit. Never turn the tree upside down. Justification by faith, that's the root. It produces the impulse to live a holy life. Now some false teachers say that since we're justified, we're forgiven, we're pardoned of all sin, and it's a secure salvation forever, then we can, we're free to sin. Nothing could be more false. That's a scandalous twisting of the gospel. In fact, if a person says or thinks or believes that, it's a sure sign that they are not justified by faith. The impulse for living a righteous life comes from being made right with God through the gospel. I'm sure you've heard this, that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works. It is always accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit. The root is faith. The good works are the, the fruit. So that brings us to number three, my final point. We've learned that justification means God legally declares a sinner righteous, not guilty. And we've learned that all attempts to live a moral life cannot justify us before a holy God. Now, thirdly and finally, Paul shows us that God justifies the sinner by means of faith alone. God justifies the sinner by means of faith alone. And if you return to 2.16 once more, you notice the occurrence to twice of the word faith and also the word believe, the verb believe. So you have the noun faith and you have the verb believe. Now take note of them there. Look at what it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed, there it is, there's the verb, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. That's that glorious monotony we were talking about earlier. Faith in Christ, believed in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ. Now look closely at those phrases and strictly speaking, listen, Listen carefully, don't misunderstand me. It is not faith that saves, 
but faith in Jesus Christ that saves. It is not mere faith, mere belief. People believe all kinds of things, right? It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ that saves. The power of salvation is not in the act of believing. It's not in an attitude of faith. It is not in the nature of faith. Listen, the power of salvation is in the object of faith. Jesus Christ. He does the saving. Jesus Christ is the Savior. It is faith in Him that saves. And beloved, listen to me. Believing means nothing unless we believe in Christ. Believing means nothing unless we believe in Christ. Sometimes we hear people say, well, you must believe in yourself. That's terrible advice. Or keep the faith. What on earth are you talking about? Or you got to have a little faith. Let me tell you that Satan has a thousand lies by which he keeps the people who believe them in bondage. People believe all kinds of lies. Do not embrace the cultural lies that filter through the, the society in which we live. It's evident from the way that Paul speaks here that faith is the instrument of our justification. Faith is not the basis of our justification. It's the instrument. The basis of our justification, our salvation, is Jesus Christ. His death, the cross work of Christ, his sinless life that he lived, his substitutionary death in our behalf, that's the basis of our justification. Faith is only the means. And even our faith is a, a, something that God works in us. The Holy Spirit creates saving faith through the word of God, through the word of the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As you hear the gospel preached, even as I am speaking to you today, the Holy Spirit uses the word to convict you of your rebellion and transgression of God's law, to convince you of your guilt and, and the justice of God's wrath against us. The Spirit of God also persuades us that the promises of, of God, the promises of forgiveness in Christ are true and that they're worthy to be believed. And we cannot take credit for our believing because it is worked in us through the Word by the working of the Holy Spirit. So faith is the instrument of our justification. Faith in Christ, once more, means believing, trusting, and resting in the death and resurrection of Christ to remove our guilt, to grant us pardon, and to declare us righteous. Only Christ is the true object of saving faith. Do not trust or believe in yourself. Do not look to your good works. Do not trust in fasting or giving to the poor. You will never be justified by those things. Jesus Christ alone must be the object of our faith. The gospel is exclusive. You cannot believe in anything else. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Christ proclaimed. And that is why justification gives assurance to our hearts. Because it is not based on changeable evidence. The, the changeable things. My, our faith ebbs and flows, right? We're up and we're down. Uh, we, we, we're confused, we're filled with doubt one day, we're full of confidence another day. But our, our salvation, our, our justification, it depends on the unchangeable Christ, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we may be 
up and down, but Christ is immutable. We used to sing, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. The cross still stands unchanged, though heaven is now his home. The mighty stone is rolled away, and yonder is my forgiveness, my sins. It's been put away, and my confidence is in Christ. Our salvation, listen, it is irreversible. Your righteousness is not in yourself. It is in heaven. It is in Christ, and there is nothing that you can do. No failure can take from the righteousness of God in Christ that is yours and is the basis of your justification. No accomplishment on your part can add to the justification that is yours in heaven, in Christ. Christ is my righteousness. He is the basis of our assurance. Many people lack assurance because they're looking to themselves. They look at their failures and they look at their lack of righteousness. But friend, for every look at yourself, you take ten looks at Christ. Look at his perfect righteousness. Look at his sinlessness. Look at his faultlessness. Even a man like Pilate had to say, I find no fault in him. He is the basis of our justification, of our acceptance, of our righteousness before God. Don't depend on changeable evidence, your feelings, signs, experiences. How many times have you wanted to pray suddenly felt the accusation of conscience and you concluded, oh, I can't pray. I'm not worthy to pray. When have you been worthy to pray? When have I ever been worthy to come before God? Listen, we have sins. Confess your sins. Yes, confess your sins. But come boldly into the presence of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. It is a lie of Satan to keep you from prayer. Come with humble repentance. But God hears you not because of how well you're doing today. He hears you because of Christ and the intercession of his son. Another song that came to my mind as I was preparing this was a hymn. I don't recall the title, but it's, it says this, So near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. You see, it's not how near you feel. You, your nearness, your justification, your righteousness, your acceptance, your security is based on who Christ is. And that never changes. So dear, so very dear to God, I cannot dearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as dear as he. Luther wrote an answer to the devil. He said, when the devil attacks me, he says, I, I'm able to say uh, thank you <laughs> because you've given me another reason to remember my assurance. And, and Luther says, mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking, his suffering and dying. Mine as much as if I had lived his life, as if I had done his deeds, as if I had spoken his words, as, as if his death and resurrection is mine. Yes, it is. <laughs> Christ is mine, and that is the basis of our justification. We're saved by faith alone. Would you pray with me?